It's The Rest Is History. Hello. I'm Frank Skinner and welcome to a very special episode of the show. We're on the road in Wiltshire at the Chalk Valley History Festival. It's a bit like Glastonbury, but the pyramid stage is actually a pyramid. <laughs> Earlier this afternoon, I went to a very disappointing English Civil War reenactment. You just can't get the pike stuff. <laughs> this is the perfect setting for me to learn more about history and a home from home for our resident historian, Professor Kate Williams. <laughs> Okay, two of my fellow festival goers today. Well, Frank, our wonderful guests are Pierre Novelli and Katie Brand. Now, this is a show where I admit that I know little about history, but I am keen to learn. What about you guys? Do you know stuff? Pierre? I've, uh, I've got a degree in Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Celtic studies, so if you... Uh, if you want someone to misremember facts about Anglo-Saxon coins, then I am your man. That's absolutely perfect. Yeah. <laughs> what, what about you, Katie? I've got a GCSE in history. But, yes. And, and, hang on, doesn't, doesn't end there. I've got an A-level in history. Oh, whoa! Yeah. And I've also got a degree in theology, which is kind of history, isn't it? Kind of. Yes. Yeah, well, yes. for me, it's completely history. But I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Catholic. <laughs> Can I say, our, our audience here, we include some people from the past. I don't just mean the elderly. I mean... Yeah. Um, we have um, people... Are you, uh, you're medieval, is that right? You look like Chaucerian. 1415 Agincourt. I didn't want your address, but if it's... <laughs> I didn't think it was going to be one of those shows, but hey. <laughs> it's not often I wake up next to a wimple. <laughs> OK, let us commence. This round is called Solid Citizens, in which I discuss my personal encounters with statues. I've made many visits to Dr Samuel Johnson's house in Gough Square, London, and I always stop and pay my respects to the statue of his cat, Hodge, that stands outside. The 18th century was a time when a cat could be celebrated for qualities other than looking like Hitler. <laughs> of course, there were cats in the 18th century that looked like Hitler, but no-one knew. <laughs> In fact, if the internet had been invented in the 1930s, there may well have been a website called German Dictators Who Look Like 18th Century Cats. <laughs> now, um, have, have either of you seen this statue of Hodge outside Dr Johnson's house? I have seen it, and I, I didn't know what it was until you just said... You didn't even recognise it as a cat? No, I knew... <laughs> <laughs> I knew um, it's got a little puddle of sick next to it, hasn't no, it? No, it hasn't got a puddle of sick. <laughs> that might it? have been someone else's enterprising addition, though. <laughs> <No. laughs> is it a different colour from the rest <laughs> yes. of the statue? I've got three cats by accident and they're always being sick, so I've always assumed it was just an accurate representation of what cats do, just to show that they're annoyed. <laughs> How do you get three cats by accident? Oh, it's a long story, Frank. I'm not going to bore you with it Okay. Here. Does it involve witchcraft? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know a little about this without going to our expert yet. I, one, one of the few things I know about in history is Dr Samuel Johnson because I, I'm, I'm, I am slightly obsessed with him. And he had a cat called Hodge, and that, that sort of slimy stuff at the side of Hodge is oysters because he used to feed Hodge on oysters. 
And, he, and then it would be sick. Um, yes, <laughs> the day you went in, it just had a bad oyster. <laughs> but um, many of you will know that um, Samuel Johnson, um, his biographer was James Boswell, who wrote one of the great biographies of all time called The Life of Johnson. And in there, he said he goes round and he says, it's a nice cat you've got. Dr Johnson and and Dr Johnson says well I've, I've had better cats I'll be honest with you and he said at that point Hodge looked straight at him Hodge the cat and Dr <laughs> Johnson looked quite guilty that he criticised him and said oh but Hodge is a very fine cat a very <laughs> fine cat indeed which is amazing because in the book Dr Johnson insults more or less every human being he comes into contact with but he's worried about the sensitivities of the cat <laughs> He was like sort of Peter Mandelson in that respect, I imagine. <laughs> With Hodge, the statue of Hodge. Yes. Was it commissioned in Johnson's lifetime and built in his lifetime? Or is it post? No. Okay. I'm pretty sure no. I'm going to ask um, Dr. K. Okay. The, yeah. the reason, Gough Square, what's particularly significant about that house is it's where Dr. Johnson compiled the amazing dictionary that he did. So that's why that's a legendary place. Mm. But I think Hodge was just put there by cat lovers. Yeah. Right. Perhaps not even officially. In the, find... in the first dictionary under cats, does it just say, the best animal <laughs> yeah. of all the animals? Yeah, just in case he left it open <laughs> and Hodge yeah, ready. Yeah. They only eat oysters <laughs> and they're never sick. So um, we're right about Hodge, aren't we? You Kate? are right about Hodge. He is indeed the featuring of the statue outside Gough Square, which was actually 1997, so not 18th century. And no. he is not sitting on catsick. He's sitting on empty oyster shells. And that's because Johnson loved him so much. He adored him so much that he began to worry that when Hodge wanted something nice to eat, that if he sent the servants out for it, the servants might get cross about attending a pampered cat. So Johnson did it himself. He used to go out Especially to get oysters for Hodge, which were, of course, then quite a common food. So he just wanted Hodge to have the best of everything. Yes. Can I say, if you hear any extraneous noises, there is a... I think that was a tank, possibly. I'm, I'm, I mean, they're, they're shrugging, the uh, people from Agincourt. LAUGHTER um, Understand, I'm, I'm sorry I brought it up. I think I've broken the, the time-space vortex. But, um, <laughs> yes, there is a Spitfire knocking about. I, I, watched, I saw some medieval peasants coming over the hill today and they were, they were buzzed by a Spitfire. <laughs> only, only at Chalk Valley. It's not a fair match. Statues of animals can be quite moving, though, can't they? There's that one at the wartime memorial on... Park Lane or something. Oh, where um, all the, the downtrodden animals of war go through a kind of opening in a wall, and then I think they're going into heaven, and they're all kind of upright and happy and free on the other side. Yes, it's, it's quite. It can be quite affecting that. Can't but it? the well, it is, and it's to celebrate that all the brave animals that have gone to war. But the slogan. Can you remember the slogan on that? No. It's, they had no choice. Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and I always, whenever I drive past, I think, oh, we're not that brave then, really. A particularly patriotic pigeon signing up for duty. <laughs> yeah. Early on in the war. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say this. is abs- I swear to you this is true. My granddad claimed that he was... He used to walk back through this field, back from the pub, and one night he walked through it and there was a, there was a circus in there and he said he went past the the, the, uh, caravan with the chimpanzees and he heard them talking and honestly he always swore this was true 
And anyone, obviously, would say to him, no, that's complete nonsense. Of course, you were drunk. And he says, no, no, no. I, I mean, I'm guessing. I don't think he'd have lied about it. I think they must have been chattering or something, and it sounded like it. But he always said, no, no, they, they can definitely talk. The reason they don't talk is the minute that they made it clear they could speak, they'd be the first on the front line during a war. <laughs> And he said they'd have them straight down the pit, you know. <laughs> they'd get all the horrible jobs. And it's, you know, there's something in that. Yeah, there is, yeah. Do you think Important. that he overheard them saying something along the lines of, oh, these suits are itchy, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> the zip stuck on yeah. mine. <laughs> no, I think he didn't think they were people. He thought the chimpanzees... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, something I wanted to ask about uh, equestrian uh, statues, because I have a vague memory that there's some sort of symbolism in an equestrian statue. Do you, do you know about this, Pierre? You're yeah. nodding. I got told that this was an urban myth, but I'm not sure. Like, if it's the horses rearing, the guy died in war, and if it's on all fours, they died of old age, and if it's a general and a horse, but apparently that's a kind of... Someone insane made that up. And no, well, just, no, I mean, no, in that. art, generally, animals are very significant. I can't remember what they signify, but in the history of art, <laughs> Often there's animals. all kinds of different... Yeah. If, you, if a woman is painted uh, holding her dog, I think it shows that she's loyal to her husband uh, and all kinds of things like that. So I think you're nodding, Kate. This is good. This is yes. a good sign. Well, I, I, did, I did once pass an equestrian statue and there's a sign that said, lame horse, no hand signals. <laughs> <laughs> I made that up. <laughs> so is it is it true with the equestrian statues, Kate? Do they tell us something? It's not true. Pierre oh. is completely right. It's an urban legend. So there is this idea that if the horse is rearing up, so both front legs in the air, uh, it means that the rider died in battle, so died bravely. One, one leg means that the rider was wounded or died of battle wounds. And if all four hooves are on the ground the rider didn't die in battle, which, of course, is a, a shameful thing for a warrior. So, for example, Napoleon, Napoleon's idea of the greatest insult was you'll die in your bed. Uh, so it's a bad thing to die outside a battle. But I'm afraid it is an urban myth. Oh, um, it simply no. doesn't apply. I'm yeah. afraid it's all just a story, and Pierre was right. If all, if all four legs of the horse are up, they died in an explosion. <laughs> <laughs> OK. In this round, we consider the George Formby song, If Women Like Them Like Men Like Those, Why Don't Women Like Me? <laughs> a fabulous source for pithy descriptions of great historical romances. In short, George questions why beautiful women go for less obviously attractive men. For example... Oh, if women like them like men like those, why don't women like me? Take Lord Nelson with one limb Lady William Hamilton, she fell for him With one eye and one arm gone west She ran like the devil and she grabbed the rest Oh, if women like them like... <laughs> So... Now, Kate is very much on her home ground here because she has written a book about um, Lady William Hamilton, as, as Formby calls him. Do you know anything about this stuff before we go to Kate? I mean, I presume because George Formey calls, him, calls her Lady William Hamilton, that, that she was a married woman. She was Nelson's mistress, and I know that she wasn't originally a lady. Like, she started out as a, a, a maid or something and sort of worked her way up to Nelson. Uh, <laughs> Using using all the skills and uh, yeah cunning she could. Interesting interpretation of working one's way off. 
He was at the top of a very high ladder. Yes. Um, this is just stirring something in me uh, to do with dirty pictures. And really? Yeah. And isn't it? Is it? Hasn't she got a reputation for being a bit risque? Because I, as most of my history uh, is taken from episodes of Blackadder. Okay. Um, which my history teachers just put on just as a treat, except the treat was every history lesson. Um, didn't Wasn't there references to her doing, sort of, being a bit mucky in Ooh, Blackadder? Wasn't there? As the, the, the Daily Mail would call it, a few nip slips. Really? <laughs> well, okay. careful, this is a history festival. <laughs> she, um, she was a sort of hostess or something. Oh, God, I, we're, we're very much damaging her reputation. Yeah. Maybe, but maybe. She, she did do kind of semi-naked pictures, didn't she? Pictures? But that would take, like, three sittings. <laughs> yes. <laughs> wasn't she... Wasn't that's not exactly the, that's the worst paparazzi <laughs> of all time. Uh, but she was the Kim Kardashian of her age, wasn't she? <laughs> well, uh, well, let's... I think we have to. We have to go to... Is, yeah. is there any truth in this... What we're saying about this there's, poor innocent woman? <laughs> there's some truth. There's some truth in the in the hostess, in the going for Nelson, in the in the glamour, in the uh, some of the dodgy pictures. So she she was. What, what can I say? When George calls her Lady William Hamilton, is that because she was a married woman? Yes, because really officially, certainly in the 18th century, you could only be a lady if you were a, a daughter. So a wife always takes on her husband's entire name. It's just like oh. Princess Michael, for example. Oh, yes. And so, indeed, uh, Kate Middleton should really be Princess William. Oh. Really? But she's not really. She's only Princess, Princess William, William on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's him. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to that Vanity Fair cover. <laughs> <laughs> So tell us more. She was born in 1765, called Amy Lyon, born into poverty in the north of England. She she became a maid, wasn't a very successful maid, got fired quite a few times, came to London to be a maid, got fired again. So I think... Perhaps the she less... kept forgetting to put her top on, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, she, tr- she tried to be an act, she tried to be a barmaid, and where she became particularly got into accelerating mode was through Dr James Graham's Temple of Health, who came down to the Strand hired this townhouse and so if this was a temple of health it would be covered in bits of see-through glass and there'll be tubes going up and down the walls which see-through ca- glass <laughs> i mean colored glass revolutionary <laughs> what am i talking about in i want to make a note of that I'm just had this idea for how we might illuminate houses <laughs> In, these, in the tube, there'd be tubes going around the walls and inside the tubes would be lemonade fizzing up and down, but they were told it was electricity. And so James Graham would stand on the stage and he would lecture on the joys of electricity, that you could buy electrical pills, electrical ether or electrical cream and you could use the electrical throne or you could also use a celestial electrical bed. And he hired goddesses to dance around him while he did this selling of the pills and... Emma was one of his goddesses, and she also adorned the celestial electrical bed, which essentially cost £50 a night to hire, so the equivalent of £3,500 today. But it was worth it, because it guaranteed you an heir. Use it, and you, you get pregnant. It's absolutely guaranteed. And so that was how she became rather celebrated, became famous. The Prince of Wales came to see her in the celestial electrical 
bed throne thing. Powered by lemonade. Yes. <laughs> and then she became a, a courtesan, a kept mistress. And from the kept, her, she was finally uh, one of the men she fell pregnant by. He threw her out into the street. So she went to one of his friends who took her on and said, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to call you Emma. I'm going to call you Emma Hart. You've got to be respectable. But after six months of her being respectable, he got bored of her and tried to sell her off to his uncle, Sir William Hamilton, who agreed to take her for six months. But Sir William Hamilton was the special envoy in Naples. He took her on for six months, fell in love with her, and she became his wife. She became Lady William Hamilton. And it was there that she met Nelson. So she met him first in 1793. She wasn't that bothered by him. And when he won the Battle of the Nile, she changed her mind. Uh, she changed her mind. So that's even all though, it took. absolutely, in I the interim, women he, are often like that post battle. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a long time, she was just in denial. <laughs> oh, oh, excellent work! I feel ashamed. Seventeen ninety-eight. <laughs> uh, so Nelson won the Battle of the Nile, and she thought, "I'm going to write to this man who I didn't really think much of before because he had." Well, he wasn't that good-looking. He had ginger hair, which is obviously a disaster in social mm. settings. Uh, and he was very small and skinny and had a very thick Norfolk accent. She didn't like him much. And then in 1798, changed her mind. So she wrote him this letter saying, come and see us in Naples and protect us from Napoleon. And Nelson got this letter. Couldn't be there fast enough. And, and then she saw Nelson and she started running towards him. And it's quite a, an occasion because Emma, well, she's about five foot ten... And she's a bigger lady. Someone mm. who saw her said, by God, what a whapper. And, uh, <laughs> and she, in those days, they'd thrown off the corset because it was too restraining. And she had all this long hair and these bosoms that were called sugar loaves. They were so big. And it was all flying free as she set off towards Nelson. And Is that small, how he lost his eye? <laughs> 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 It was a Naples slip. <laughs> he didn't say, I see no ships. He's been misquoted. <laughs> uh, and so she started... He, he had an eye for the ladies. <laughs> Kept it in his waistcoat pocket. <laughs> Sorry, keep going, no, Kate. There's Nelson. He's, you know, five foot six and small and skinny and he's been hasn't been off a ship in, in in months and he's very weak through his battles and here comes five foot ten of larger lady rushing towards him and then she sees him and she stops and she shouts oh god is it possible and then she faints right on top of him <laughs> in front of everyone the king and the queen and the her husband and all of nelson's men and he's so shocked by this when well, what would you do frank if this larger lady faints on top of you and you've only got one arm i mean <laughs> He faints too. He faints too. He faints. He faints too. Nelson. The, the pair of them on the deck, splat in front of everyone. And I mean, quickly they recover, and he gathers her up into his arm and <laughs> <laughs> take, takes her off to the cabin. And there, the great love affair is begun, and no one can wow. part them. They are pretty much joined together after that. And yes, they let's are... not go into detail. <laughs> Did she put Nelson on a pedestal? <laughs> okay. I wanted to have a round about famous doors from ancient history. I was going to call it Early Doors. But I just couldn't think of any. I bet there's someone in this audience, by the way, who could actually name an early door. Anybody? I can think of an early door. Go on. It's a bit of a... It's a little bit of a cheat, but what the, the tombstone that rolled back from Jesus' tomb. Perfect. <laughs> 
I was hoping the audience would call loads out. Then I could say I got heckled early doors. <laughs> anyway, I couldn't do a round called early doors, so here's a round about early books. It's called Book Early. Now, I was visiting the National Trust property, Lyme Park, which is up in the, in the north of England, and I found out that there's a book there called The Lyme Missal, which is a, um, originally a Roman Catholic missal, and I went and had a look at it there, and it's the most incredible thing. It's got, you know when you get the printer's name at the end of a book? So instead of, like, Penguin or Hodder Stoughton, it's got William Caxton, <laughs> which is mind-blowing. And there's a, there was a quote, they had the, the wedding service in there, and one of the woman's promises was that she had to promise to be bonny and boxum in bed and at board. <laughs> Great. What do you make of that? I wish I'd known that before I got married. I'd have included that in the uh, <laughs> in our vows. Well, you're bonny and boxum. Thank you, Frank. I mean, I don't know about at bed. But... <laughs> what I do is I run at people and just jump on top yeah. of them. <laughs> Surely, if you're, if you're just buxom in general, it's not a, something that can sort of drift away from you during lunch or something. Well, I think buxom then probably didn't mean quite, quite what it. It's not like so not specific. a page three as, as yeah. now. I think it basically means full of life. And, yeah. and the other thing before we ask Kate about this is that one of the weird things about this book is it was a Roman Catholic missal that had been through the Reformation. So you'd think yeah. it would have been burnt or destroyed, but what it had in it was crossings out which yeah. made it legal. And I love the idea that, you know, when you imagine, like, the Nazis, the, the, the darkest days was when they burnt books, but the English, we just cross out. <laughs> there's Something a, lovely about there's it. Slightly similarly, there's a, there's a whole thing of... Is it called marginalia? Have I got that Oh, yes. Right? Yeah. Of, of and, ancient monks and things yeah, writing and, and funny glasses. things. Yeah, in, in the margins, writing little rude things and drawing funny little rude yeah. pictures as well. I've, I've held one which has some of those in. Really? There's, a, there's a few of um, from the sort of Viking age of monks illuminating and obviously it's freezing cold monastery and it's taking days just for, to do a single page and they've written things in the margin like, oh, my hand hurts, I hate this. Sort of, <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. There's, there's one... Um, <laughs> There's there's one where they write um, they write about how much they hate the abbot. There's one where they've written a, a sort of a joke about farts. Um, but the best one was one one had a little note in the margin, which was um, a sort of homoerotic poem about the monk next to him, <laughs> where he he referred to him as being as sweet as a clutch of nuts. Just very, very nice. Wow. <laughs> and was there an arrow pointing to the, to the monk? I'm sure he's Sorry, don't, up don't mention arrows in front of the adjunct court block. <laughs> <laughs> that um, Bonnie and Boxham in bed and at board, is, it reminded me, do you remember Jerry Hall yes. said that thing? Jerry Hall is not a National Trust property, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, that she said you had to be a cook in the kitchen and a whore in the bedroom. Yeah. So it's a similar sort of modern, thing. Modern noted philosopher Usher requiring a lady in the streets and a freak in the bed. You know? <laughs> In his noted his noted work, but I like this as a yeah as a kind of um, what the, about the a bird of... in the hand and no forget that one. <laughs> <laughs> now we're getting technical. I'm going to the professor. What do you know about the lime missile case? You know, I was also thinking about an 18th century law in which basically you could divorce your wife if you felt that you'd been tricked by her makeup. So next morning, yeah. if she'd been wearing too much makeup and you thought, my goodness. This isn't what I expected. You could divorce her. Wasn't Henry VIII tricked? 
tricked. One of his wives was he was told she was very beautiful and he was given some fake pictures and then when she Anna turned Cleves. up Yes, he was horrified. He was horrified. Openly and horrified. It was also the smell as well. He said she smelled terrible. So right. poor Henry had to get rid of her straight away. But it was also the fact <laughs> yes, that Yes, poor Henry. It was also the fact that he didn't um, <laughs> That's what I always think when I think he of Henry. Had to get rid of her straight away. <laughs> One of the strangest justifications of Henry the Eighth I've ever heard. He, oh, she lived. She lived. She oh, always had to get back together, as in the Taylor Swift song, but they never did. But one of the problems was... <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, the, the actual book, the lime missile that you saw, and what a beautiful book it is, mm. it is, was printed in 1487, and it's the first printed text to bear William Caxton's device, but actually he did outsource it to a French printer called Guillaume Maynal. William Caxton was too busy. He outsourced it. Wow. And we thought outsourcing was a modern invention. So what's very interesting about this book is that it has red and black different text. And the red text is what you should do during the service. And the black text is what you should say. And was that, was that a normal um, part of the wedding service, to be bonnie and boxing at bed and at board? That was standard. It was standard. It was standard. It was standard part of the service. And there were demands of women, so which have changed over the years. For a long time, we were told to obey. Now that's pretty much been knocked out of the marriage service. Mm. But yes, I think it's really about being smiling and willing. And I'd, I'd be happy it. to try and be buxom, as long as we, everyone was agreeing to it. But I, don't, I don't think it's the <laughs> same. Well, beard. It's not the same as Boste, is it? You can't impose no. that as, a, no, as, a, you as an house. No matter how hard you, you could now, I suppose, but not then. Did Buxom just mean sort of enthusiastic? Yes. I think, yeah, I and think cheerful. it means like full of loving warmth. Yeah, but at that time, I, I always associate. I don't know why that got a laugh. It's a lovely sentiment. <laughs> but, for, but that kind of lustiness. It was the hand gestures, wasn't it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Bit, yeah. I know I've let myself down. I, really, I thought you. I thought you couldn't see from back there. Yeah. The waggling eyebrows. You're, you were imaginarily very buxom though for a moment. <laughs> um, do, um, but but pre, I always associate pre-Victorian England with being a much more generally warm and buxom, lusty place than 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 post-Victorian. There was. Is that right? Is that we kind of and we got a sort of a bit of a hangover still of real Victorian sort of slightly prudish whereas prior to that and the kind of in my mind the sort of merry old England type thing everyone was sort of swinging from the rafters and drinking yeah. cider and just generally were a lot more relaxed about all that side of life weren't they? Well there were still very stiff ideas about female virtue going right from right through all the centuries but the big difference is throughout the uh, 15, 16, 17, 18th century uh, you people believed as in the temple of health that women should have pleasure in order to conceive that they couldn't conceive unless they'd had oh. a form of pleasure. And it wasn't until there was a discovery that women's reproductive cycle continues whatever happens that people began to think, ah, oh, women don't need to have pleasure, they don't need to enjoy it, they can just lie there and be virtuous. So Lie There and Think of England came in in 1911, a bit later than we think. Oh, really? And that late? It's that late. So actually, it was in the late Victorian period that we discovered this matter. The whole point of the Temple of Health was that everyone's going to have a great time on the celestial bed and then conceive, so the Temple of Health could come back. Yes. yes. This isn't quite what you expected, no, no. is it? <laughs> <laughs> Can I say before, well, over the Spitfire, you've been a really lovely, warm-hearted uh, crowd. And thanks very much for the Agincourt people for, um, for turning up. That's, uh, that's great. Pardon? Oh, you're the Saxons. Terribly I thought I recognised... <laughs> I thought I recognised... God. <laughs> that's one faux pas I've previously avoided in life. <laughs> Well, thank you to Professor Kate Williams, my guests Katie Brand and Pierre Novelli, and thank you for listening and the rest, as they say. 
The Rest is History was hosted by Frank Skinner and Professor Kate Williams. The guests were Pierre Novelli and Katie Brand. The producers were Mark Augustine and Justin Pollard. This was an Avalon production for BBC Radio 4.